Hello, welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. In this episode, I will be looking at The Hound. Um, the Hound first appeared uh, in Weird Tales in 1924. It was written in late 1922 at some point. Um, and yeah, so um, what is this story about? Well, this story is, you know, there's a lot of kind of interesting things going on here a lot of uh we got grave robbing we got uh, some philosophy here about about kind of the banality of existence we have a very very interesting and fairly well described monster it's not the unnameable like we just looked at it's actually something that is definable and describable and we, it's kind of a story about art in a lot of ways in in the fact that these people are essentially art collectors although they're they're using grave robbing to to do it i mean the story itself is fairly straightforward these two two men who get bored with life take up grave robbing they explore these different uh tombs all over europe bring back these artifacts which they begin to keep in their whole house which turns into kind of this occult um, grotesque museum and then they go to holland to dig up like a a legendary artifact that they heard about in the necronomicon they they this is actually the story that first mentions the Necronomicon. Um, we heard of Abdul Hazaret before, and the Necronomicon was quoted, but that's kind of a retcon. I, I don't know if when Lovecraft wrote the, the, the Nameless City, he was thinking of, of, of the Necronomicon you know, by name yet, but he did have this quote that would be later be associated with that book. Um, but they, they find this amulet, they bring it back, and, but they're followed home by, by the owner of the amulet, this monster that, that kills one and drives the other one to, to suicide. So, yeah, it's kind of got a bleak ending in which, which the narrator, kind of like in Dagon, you know, is telling this story, but the, the immediate aftermath of the story appears to be the suicide of, of the narrator. So as the story begins, our narrator is just explaining how he's that, He's fearing this, these particular sounds that are he associates with this creature, which he calls a hound, or basically because it sounds like a hound, it looks more like a like a like a man bat, a man bat kind of creature. But it's uh, the sounds that are associated with it are, are, are whirling, flapping, and the bane as if of some gigantic hound. So those sounds appear quite often in the in the story as they're being kind of hunted down by this by this creature. Then we learn that his companion Senjun. Uh, spelled S-T period, like spelled like St. John, but it's pronounced St. John, I think. Um, and he's been already killed. Uh, he knows why, and his knowledge of this is going to lead him to his, his suicide. And then he goes into the background, which led them down this, this dark path. And the fascinating thing about this is essentially ennui that... Uh, leads them to this you know Lovecraft before especially in the dream one stories has talked about the banality and the boredom of of modern existence of of industrial society right and he goes into a little bit more detail here than he sometimes does about the the path that these characters took which led them to grave robbing right and it's it's kind of like how some of our other characters they have some discontent some boredom in this world and so they explore books they, they explore some mystery, they dig into the past or, you know, whatever. We've seen different variants of this, this theme before, but this one is it, clearly stated that they are just simply bored with the world. 
quote, wearied with the commonplaces of a prosaic world where even the joys of romance and adventures soon grow stale. So what do they do? Well, they do what any young people might do. I'm not sure how old they are, but you know, they're, they're, they don't seem to be too old. They do what anyone might do in that situation, that is explore philosophy. They go into the philosophy of the time, hoping that that can be some kind of escape from their, their ennui. So the first kind of philosophical tradition they explore are the symbolists. I mean, it's not even a philosophy. It's more of, a, of an artistic tradition. But uh, the symbolists, they essentially believe that, that like, you know, they're, they're kind of a modernist form of art where they thought that, you know, you really can't, art itself can't convey truth directly. You can't just draw a picture of a, of, of a happy couple and say that's love or something. Absolute truth has to be directed symbolically, right, or more in subjective manners. So their artistic movement was pushed uh, in, that, in that way to, to kind of use symbols to, to, to get at some greater truth. Uh, they also explore the art of the Pre-Raphaelites, now, the pre-Raphaelites are more the opposite of this. My understanding is that they're more shooting for direct realism. Um, from according to Wikipedia, quote, to study nature attentively so as to know how to express them, to sympathize with what is direct and serious and heartfelt in previous art, to the exclusion of what is conventional and self-parading and learned by rote, uh, and to produce thoroughly good pictures and statues. So, um, you know, that's, that's that approach. Then they embraced the decadence, and the decadence, according to Wikipedia, uh, was a late 19th century artistic and literary movement that followed an aesthetic ideology of excess and artificiality. Right? The movement was characterized by self-disgust, sickness at the world, general skepticism, delight in perversion, and employment in crude humor. So we got these three different movements, and finally they, they, they kind of turned their back on all three of these movements as not sufficient to their goals. But there's somehow, it seems, the theme here is... is some relationship with with reality like if you're bored with the world right maybe art can find us some beauty in the world that we can't kind of visualize or experience on our own right um or maybe can be a more perfect reflection of of beauty maybe that's why the pre-raphaelites are are interesting to them for a while because maybe through them you can find the true beauty of of nature and existence or the decadence you just sort of abandon that all as pointless and just just embrace uh excess but eventually they, they go bored of these kind of intellectual and philosophical pursuits. Lovecraft describes them as philosophical, but they're, they're actually artistic movements mostly. Um, but anyways, they get bored, and so they go for the, quote, more direct stimuli of unnatural personal experiences and adventures. So rejecting the secondhand experience of art, and instead they want to embrace the personal experiences, and particularly adventure. So this this boredom with both the world and then eventually with the philosophical movements of the, of the late 19th century, they move into uh, the quote abhorred practice of grave robbing. And then we get this really good page or so where they just get it. We just get a description of the museum they've collected because as they're grave robbing, they're stealing artifacts. They're stealing bodies, mummies, uh, whatever kind of things they can find. And they end up creating this really occult, uh, creepy grotesque museum in their basement essentially right i don't think people see it. it's not a museum of that sort but it is a, a a record of their of their discoveries and they find all sorts of uh things you know the kind of the highlight of this are our mummies but they also find um 
What are some of the things they look into? Hidden pneumatic pipes. Um, a bomb portfolio tanned with human skin, for instance. A book. This is really interesting. Back to art. A book of drawings that was rumored to be Goya's, but ones that he refused to, to reveal to the public because they were just too... Too horrible. And then there's even some work of arts produced by St. John and the narrator, which are also part of the museum. So it's just a really wonderful description of all the different knickknacks, bodies, artistic works that they produced, right? Um, and you get this great language here describing this quote. Um, to quote them, to quote the narrator, I mean, uh, they find a musical instrument. And this is what they say of it. It produces dissidence of exquisite morbidity and caca demoniacal ghastliness. Um, all told, they get the quote, an unimaginable variety of tomb loot ever assembled by human madness and perversity. So our narrator at this time has totally seen this collection as perverse. Uh, now, at the time that he's telling this story, as he's narrating it, He's already destroyed this museum out of kind of horror at, at, at what's come of their explorations. Now, I want to go back to a theme I talked about a little bit with her, in Herbert West Reanimator, and it came up in a few other stories. It's something that seems to be on Lovecraft's mind at this point in his career, and it maybe culminates in Pickman's model, is this kind of scientific versus the artistic perspective on, on life and, and existence. And when you're faced with the grotesque, the battlefield, right, war, Right. One response to that is to kind of embrace in your art that grotesqueness and, and try to see the world as it is, you know, in all its horror and, and, and viciousness. Right. Not quite what sounds like what the pre-Raphaelites were doing. They were trying to show nature as it is, but to do it in a beautiful way that, that, that produce beautiful pictures and and were pleasing to look at. But a lot of artists in the post-World War One period kind of went for the grotesque because that's reflecting their experiences in war, the experiences of the whole civilization as it was torn apart in war. Millions of wounded, millions of dead, vast destruction of landscapes, just brutality across the board, uh, war crimes, genocide, and, and of course that, that continues throughout the 20th century. So artists then will, will want to embrace that, that horror in their art. Other people may try, like Herbert West, you know, he wants to embrace it more scientifically and, and you know, and, and but even he kind of moves into this more aesthetic phase, I think, at the end of his his career. But there's a great quote early in the story where, he, where there's this discussion of like, if an artist could see this, you know, they would look at this differently than we looked at it as, as medical students. Right. But here we have a couple of, of artistically minded people observing all of these horrors, all this ghastliness, all this, all these dead bodies and weird, weird artifacts, collecting them all together. Um, and, you know, and creating out of that a true kind of aesthetic experience in, in literally a museum. And he even defends himself, you know, saying, quote, we were no vulgar ghouls, but worked under certain conditions of mood, landscape, environment, weather, season and moonlight. These pastimes were to us the most exquisite forms of aesthetic expression, and we gave their details a fastidious technical care. An inappropriate hour, a jarring lightning effect, or a clumsy manipulation of the damp sod would also totally destroy for us that ecstatic titillation which followed the exhumation of some ominous grinning secret of the earth. Our quest for novel scenes and piquant conditions was feverish and insatiate. St. John was always the leader, and he, he it was who led the way at last to that mocking and accursed savat that brought our hideous and inevitable doom. 
So what they start to follow is vernacular traditions. So that's a theme I've been pushing in this, this podcast, uh, of course, but they, that's what they end up following, right? Dark rumors and legends of, of something buried in a Holland churchyard for five centuries, right? Now, this person is akin to our narrator and his friend in that he's described as being a little bit ghoulish himself, having stolen things and put them into his own sepulcher. So... This thing is even a product of his own ghoulish grave robbing. So there's some kind of a meta, uh, a second layer of grave robbing in in their quest here. But anyways, they're going to be go, they're going to be going off to Holland to on this vacation to dig a grave. Now there's one little important bit of information about uh, in these peasant traditions that they draw from for their quest about the fate of the person they're digging up, and that's going to be important for. This story, it's a warning, it's a warning that, that of course will come true, that is, he had been found, quote, in this same self-spot, torn and mangled by claws and teeth of some unspeakable beast, right? Commonplace enough story, you know, the kind of the, the tale that frightens children, the, the story carried on by, by, by peasants and, and, and villagers throughout the world. Of course, in a Lovecraft tale, it's, it's more foreshadowing than, than just uh, uh, something we can throw away. Lovecraft always seems to take the legends seriously. I, I haven't yet found really a case where the legend is not at least somewhat true. Um, yeah. So anyways, they dig up the body. They're, they're able to get to the box that contains the body. It's a, it's a rotting, long box. Uh, it's fairly well held together for five centuries underground. But um, even the body is fairly well intact. The skeleton is still there. Um, and they find this amulet, right? This is like the thing they're looking for. Now, remember, this guy who died and was killed was himself a, a, a ghoul of a sort. So, so who knows the ultimate origin of it? It certainly goes back really far because it's mentioned in the Necronomicon. So um, they find this. And here's how it's described. Uh, an amulet of curious and exotic design, which had apparently been worn around the sleeper's neck. It was the oddly conventionalized figure of a crouching winged hound or sphinx with a semi-canine face, and was exquisitely carved in antique oriental fashion from a small piece of green jade. So this is really, really subtle, and, and it reminds me a little bit of something in the story, the, trans, uh, the transition of Juan Romero, in that Lovecraft is kind of, if you go back enough, the idea is if you go back enough, all these different traditions and cultures had some kind of roots and some networks tying them together. Networks that could be sustained, maybe forgotten, but, but sometimes sustained through kind of underground networks. In tra Transition of Juan Romero, it seems to be literally underground that seems to be connecting these things. There it was the Hindu tradition and the New World Gods, right? Here, it's, we got a little reference to Egyptian iconography, the, the crouch-winged hound or sphinx with the jade, which seems to be an import from, from China, right? No maker, but certainly well-skilled, right? And their approach to this is that it's, it, it's kind of what you investigate this, you explore it, you cherish it like you do would a work of art. So what do you do with the work of art while you look? Well, what was the influences on this? What are some other pieces that carry those those um, those features, right? But there are none. This is totally unique. It's a totally unique piece. Nothing like this exists in art history, and certainly these people would know that because that's kind of the world that they're ensconced in. But they have heard of this, and the amulet has been mentioned in the forbidden Necronomicon of the mad 
Arab Abdul Al-Hazarad, the ghastly soul symbol of the corpse-eating cult of inaccessible Lang. So we get a couple references here to Lovecraftian kind of people and places, ones that show up a lot. Uh, Lang being one, I mean, Lang is somewhere in Central Asia, maybe Tibet, um, although it's not really a reachable place, so it's not really, you know, it'll, it we'll keep our eyes open for it. I think it's mentioned in the, the Mountains of Madness. It's mentioned in the Whisper in Darkness. Maybe it shows up in the Dream Ones. I'm not sure. I don't think so. But, you know, it's, you got, there's some cult there, though, corpse-eating cult in, in Lang. And you got, of course, Abdul Al-Hazarad, who we've already met, and the Necronomicon. Now, what do we know about the Necronomicon, according to Lovecraft? Well, he wrote... Uh, in 1927 or so, so five years after the story was written, he finally wrote his little a little history of the Necronomicon. It's like a one-page or two-page little treatment um, where he says, it was composed by Abdul Hazarad, the mad poet of Sana in Yemen, who is said to have flourished during the period of the Omanite Caliphs circa 700 AD. So this is the first century of, of, of the Islamic Empire. Right? But he was a big traveler. He visited Babylon, the subterranean secrets of Memphis, and he spent 10 years alone in the great southern deserts of Arabia um, and, and some other places. At some point, he must have discovered the nameless city because he seems to mention it shows up there. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe there's not a direct connection to the nameless city, although it's quoted. Um, but anyways, that's, it goes back to the 600. So this artifact goes back that far at least to, to around to the 7th century, right? And we know our, our corpse here, the, the ghoul that they're digging up, the, that, the ghoul that these ghouls are digging up, was, was like in the 15th century then, if it's 500 years ago, right? If we set this in early 20th century, you know, it's, it's somewhere like in the 14th or 15th century that he did this. So I don't know, you know, it's not clear who had possession of it before, but, you know, they probably wouldn't have had a good end, as we'll see. So anyways, it was there. It was there in the Necronomicon mentioned here. Um, so they get it. They take it. They steal the amulet. St. John is the one who carries it. And they leave, leave Holland. Their vacation's over. They go back to, to, to England. Now, there's one thing I didn't mention, and I, I probably should have, is that before they dig the body... Right. They do hear these sounds, these notable sounds. It's a second mention of these sounds, first in the first paragraph. And then here, while they're kind of digging around in the, in the churchyard, they hear the faint, deep-toned baying of some gigantic hound, which you can neither see nor definitely place. So that, that creature is sort of out there protecting this, this amulet in some way. So anyways, they return to England. And then this story is broken up into two parts. So uh, the part one is about finding the amulet. And then part two is the resolution of what happens to them as a result of them locating the amulet. Now, they say strange things, or the narrator says strange things begin to happen. It seems to be sounds or, or you know, like people around. They don't get visitors. This museum's like private and they're weirdos. No one goes to talk to these two people. So when there's like knocking at the door and sounds around the house, they think it's weird and it's notably strange for them to... To have that, they investigate, but don't really find any answers to why that's going on. Um, they also begin to treat the Jade Amulet in a very, very odd way. Um, they have all these artifacts, but this one they seem to treat specially. Uh, quote, the Jade Amulet now reposed in a niche in our museum, and sometimes we burn strangely scented candles before it. 
which why you know they seem to almost worship it or or take or give it a special kind of ritual center place in the museum and they kind of become obsessed with it and they read into what the necronomicon says of it so we read much in al hazara's necronomicon about its properties its relation of ghoul souls to the object it symbolized and we were disturbed by what we read then the terror came and so we get this quote here it's, it's uh September 24th, you know, some, some date, early 20th century, 19 something. And quote, I hear a knock at my chamber door, right? It's like a pun on, on, on Poe, I guess, the raven. Um, now, according to the introduction by Klinger, there's a lot of, Lovecraft here is doing a lot of mocking of writers like Poe and Pierce and others that he was a, a fan of. And this kind of accounts for why um, some commentators, S.T. Josie is mentioned here by name, kind of find the story a bit overwritten and, and a bit too wild. I don't feel that way. I don't feel the story is, is kind of, is particularly overwritten. I, yeah, certainly he's, he's borrowing some of these imagery from other writers and maybe some of the style, but I don't really want to come at it that way. I don't really care about that aspect of it. Um, but anyways, I did, you know, there are moments in which you're like, oh, that does seem to be from, from Poe, and here's an example of that. Now, he goes to the door, and instead of hearing, getting a, a human answer, he just gets a, a shrill laugh. So it's another sound that's associated with it. But the big sounds they start to hear more and more are that distant bane, that, that, that hound-like bane, um, and, and the, the whirling and the flapping. These are the, the sounds that they start to hear more and more of over yeah, as the days progress after they return from Holland. At one time they hear some sound and they go to investigate and they don't really get a clear answer, but they hear kind of a, a tittering, a, a chattering, and they don't know what's being said, but they say this is Dutch. It's clearly the Dutch language. So soon after this, St. John meets his, he meets his demise. Um, you know, but they, they continue to be horrified for quite a while, for like a couple months almost, it seems, that they're constantly being kind of tormented by these sounds, by these visitations. Um, and they seem to be almost going mad, or they start to think that they're going mad, that that's the only explanation, like a mutual madness as a result of maybe what they found or their, just, their whole life's work, their whole experiences of their life seem to hint at a type of madness. Um, so they start to think maybe we are going mad. Quote, bizarre manifestations were now too frequent to count. Our lonely house was seemingly alive with the presence of some malign being whose nature we could not guess. And every night that demonic bane rolled over the wind slept more, always louder and louder. So anyways, it's on November 18th. I'm not sure when they returned quite from, from England. The knocking on the chamber door was September 24th. Um, yeah, I don't think we have any other dates for that. But it, it's like two months after they've returned or so, give or, give or take, it seems. Um, and he gets attacked while walking home from, from the rail station, torn to ribbons, totally mutilated. So that's, uh, that's the fate of St. John. Uh, our, our narrator's able to get to him before he's totally dead. He's dying. He's able to give his kind of last dying words. And it's just that, oh, the amulet to that damn thing. And then he then he dies, and his his mangled mangled corpse, you know, is is all that's left of of poor Saint John. So, as if to kind of make matters almost worse, our narrator 
buries his friend, but buries him using devilish rituals, devilish rituals that he, quote, loved in, in life. Um, and this just seems to pique the, pique the attention, pique the interest of, of whatever's hunting them. Quote, as I pronounced the last demoniac, uh, demoniac sentence, I heard afar on the moor the faint baying of some gigantic hound. The moon was up, but I dared not look at it. And when I saw on the dim-lit moor a wide nebulous shadow sweeping from mound to mound, I shut my eyes and threw myself face down upon the ground. When I rose trembling, I knew not how much later I staggered into the house and made shocking obstinances before the enshrined amulet of green jade. So he's come to the conclusion, as we do, as St. John did, that the amulet is what this thing is after. He's left alone, though, for a few days, um, but first he, he destroys, he burns down his museum, takes the amulet, and his intention is to go back to Holland to kind of bury the amulet back to where he found it, right? Restore it to, you know, if you kind of put the mummy back in the pyramid, like the curse will be abolished. That's the idea in his head. Um, but nevertheless, the bane is still surrounding him, and he still hears it before too long. Right, and he starts to feel he's being watched, um, but he has to like take some time to kind of get prepared for this trip. So he's hanging around in England for a while. But finally, he's able to get his stuff together and sail off to to Holland, where he has the hopes of returning this amulet and, and saving his life. Now everything's going sort of okay, but in Rotterdam he gets robbed of the amulet by a group of thieves. And so now he despairs. He, he knows he, he can't really pay this debt. He can never like really atone for this curse. He can never restore the, the amulet back to its, to its proper place, right? Which it's not anyways, right? Because they, they found it in the grave of a tomb robber who had stolen from somewhere else, right? right? I don't think it's like, I think he's wrong here to want to restore it to the place. It, it's, he has to restore it to the entity that, that has dominion over it. It's not so much important that, about the place. But anyways, he's lost it. These thieves stole it from him. So he doesn't really have much to do, much hope. So his only hope is to go to the graveyard and kind of pray for, for mercy. Whatever, that's the only idea he has. But he does read in the newspaper, though, that... Um, like there was this mass murder in the tenement and it's those thieves, right? Those thieves were massacred. The thieves that stole the amulet were, were, were killed. Quote, the rabble were in terror for upon an evil tenement had fallen a red death beyond the followers previous crime of the neighborhood. In a squalid thieves den, an entire family had been torn to shreds by an unknown thing which left no trace. And those around had heard all night above the usual clamor of drunken voices, a faint, deep, insistent note as if a gigantic hound. So the final scene of the story is quite good. It's winter now because you know it's it's probably like December by this point. He's, he's by the time he gets to 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 Sahalin, or at least it's late November, and so you got this wintry scene, and he's in this churchyard in a, in a winter night. You got the winter moon providing the only light for him. He's got the bane in the background of this this creature, um, the the all the other sounds the that are associated with this, this creature, right? But he doesn't know what to do. He's completely baffled of what to do. So, he's, so he writes, I know not why I went thither unless to pray or gibber out insane pleas and apologies to the calm white thing that lay within. Speaking of the skeleton. 
But whatever my reason, I attacked the half-frozen sod with a desperate, desperation partially mine and partially that of a dominating will outside myself. Excavation was much easier than I expected, though at one point I encountered a queer interruption when a lean vulture darted down over the cold sky and pecked frantically at the grave earth until I killed him with a blow of my spade. Finally, I reached the rotting oblong box and removed the damp nitrous cover. This was the last rational act I ever performed. And why? Well, it's not the it's not the when he opens up the 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 coffin. It's not the what they thought was this just skeleton, right? Because that's all they you know noticed before. But now it's not white anymore. It's covered in blood because it was just hunting, right? And he sees that this this was what was hunting him. Quote. Covered with cake blood and shreds of alien flesh and hair and leering sentiently with phosphorescent sockets and sharp ensanguined fanes yawning twistedly in mockery at my inevitable doom. And when it gave from those graining jaws a deep sardonic bay of some gigantic hound, and I saw that it held in its gory filthy claw the lost and faded amulet of green jade, I merely screamed and ran away idiotically, my screams soon dissolving into pearls of historical laughter. And so that's when the final paragraph of the story is just a, a reminder that after seeing this, he's went mad and he decided that only the oblivion of, you know, of suicide will be his refuge from the unnamed and the unnameable. Um, so, you know, he's already used this term, the unnameable, in, in a story written around this time called the unnameable. Um, but this is a fairly, I think, well-described creature. It's, it's more well-described than than uh, the creature and the unnameable anyways. But um, yeah, that's that's how it ends. So this uh, is a, just a really nice horror story. And it's also a story, I think, about art. And, and I think it's something that's really on Lovecraft's mind at this time in his career. Again, culminating in Pickman's model, but also I think maybe in the dream quest of Unknown Kadath in a way, is just this kind of drive to experience art through art and through the artistic experience, whether as the creator or the observer, the, the grotesque, right? And I, I think that's where the world sort of was in the late, you know, in the post-war period, right? So much of art was embracing the grotesque. Um, if you want a great introduction into this, I urge you to read uh, this a book by a guy named Poole called Wastelands, which is about the impact of World War I on art, music, novels, literature, and even Lovecraft himself. So uh, so I think there's something to that in just the artistic culture at the time, right? The 19th century, you know, all these different artistic movements, but all trying to get at like some kind of truth and, and kind of a beauty associated with that, right? Even when you start to get to the modern art. But after World War I, you get much more of an embrace of the grotesque and, and, the, and the horrible. Um, because that's the reality of human experiences at that time. That's what people knew. So art should reflect that in a way, right? And so there's a lot of that in this story. I think that's the most interesting part. The, the digging up of the amulet and then being hunted down by the beast, kind of commonplace, you know, horror, horror, people who consume horror have heard the story a million times. But uh, it's, it's obviously well done because it's done by Lovecraft. But um, I think this story is notable for its use of art as as a theme um i would also say remind us that this introduces the necronomicon by name and also it is a story that also has for us um both the the kind of 
the traditions embraced in the text, like the Necronomicon, the forbidden book that somehow carries on some you know, knowledge. But you also have knowledge carried on by the commoners, by just the people. And in this story, it's represented by the peasantry who you know, have, have kept a certain knowledge about the about this, you know, what this man who was buried, right? This this burial site, you know, kept the kept the truth alive in a way through through word of mouth. So I guess that'll be it. That's all I'm going to say about the hound. Um, but uh, we got a lot more stories to look at. Um, so, but if you have your own thoughts about the hound, about especially if you can give any specific details about this. Theory. It seems it's apparently confirmed by Lovecraft himself in some of his letters that he was kind of parodying Bierce and Poe and, and these other writers. You know, anything specific about that would be appreciated. Um, I'm not sure how useful it will be to me, but I'm sure many readers out there who are interested in those connections between writers will will appreciate that stuff. Um, I'm, uh, yeah, send me an email, send me a message if you have anything to contribute about The Hound. Next up, I'll be looking at The Lurking Fear. I think The Lurking Fear will be another two-parter. It's, it's a rather, rather long story. I think it's about 50, 60 pages. It's in multiple parts. So um, that's going to take a while. And there's a lot of stuff there about race, about um, heredita heredity, about eugenics, uh, important themes that, um, that, uh, that I am pr primarily interested in and in, in exploring in, through Lovecraft. So uh, that will probably be a two-parter again, just like Herbert West Reanimator. We're going to get a lot more multi-part ones coming up, obviously, as we get to the longer tales. So that will be next, The Lurking Fear. So I will see you then. Thanks for, for listening. <laughs>